We are in Colossians, and we finished chapter 2 last week, but there was something that I skimmed over that I want to come back and make sure we get it. And that's back in 2.11, because we're going to revisit that in chapter 3. So Colossians 2.11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Messiah, having been buried with him in baptism, that's going to be key, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now we're going to revisit that concept when we get down to chapter 3. So I wanted to get that in, even though we had talked about it last time. So now down to verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We went off on to disarming rulers and authorities, which is in verse 15, and I really didn't make a point on nailing to the cross, and that needs to be made a point of. I have heard preachers on Christian radio saying that the thing that was nailed to the cross is that old law. That's not what's being said here. What's being said is the record of your offenses is what's being nailed to the cross. So, to give an example, let's say you're speeding down I-25 and you get stopped by a state trooper and you get frog marked out of your car, strip searched and have a ticket written for you. What's nailed to the cross is the ticket. What is not nailed to the cross is the traffic regulation that you just broke. The traffic regulation is still in force. What has happened is you have been forgiven for violating that, and the record of your transgressions, however long that happens to be, is what got nailed to the cross. As I say, I have heard Christian preachers, popular ones on the radio, saying that the thing that was nailed to the cross was that old law, doesn't apply to you anymore, or words to that effect. That is bogus. That is wrong. It is not correct. Comment was that when Yeshua was crucified, they nailed above him on his cross the phrase in Hebrew, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And the rabbis all freaked when they did that. What you're saying is you have heard it said that that was the offense for which he was crucified. You may be correct. That's not something I know. It is not scriptural. It may be correct. It may not. I, I just don't know. The reason the rabbis freaked, however, is in Hebrew it was Yeshua HaNatsari Melech Yehuda, yod heh vav -Heh. So the initials of the words that were written up there in Hebrew were yod heh vav -Heh, which is the first letter of Yehuda HaNatsari Melech HaYehuda. And so the rabbis looked at that and said, oh, shoot, you got to take that down. And Pilate said, I wrote what I wrote. And so that was there. And the reason I'm not jumping on your bandwagon with that being his offense, I sort of think that God arranged that to happen. So 
again, I'm not arguing with you at all, I just don't know. Comment was that in 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And our little example, you've got a ticket for speeding on I-25. You may have added offense for sassing the officer. Could be all sorts of things. That record of your offense, along with the fine that is due, are canceled. The traffic law that you violated is still in force. So if you go back out again and you speed again, you will get stopped again and you will get another ticket and that one may or may not be nailed to the cross. But I wanted to emphasize that because as I say, I have heard Sunday preachers quote this as being evidence that the law or the Torah doesn't apply to believers. And that is not what it says at all. So now, to sort of recap what we had in chapter 2, in addition to what we just talked about, what Paul is doing here is, first off, he's establishing who the Messiah is, that he is, in fact, God. The fullness of deity dwells in him, and that he was there at creation, that if you're Trinitarian, as I happen to be, he is a member of the Godhead, one being in three persons, three aspects, three plans. I've never figured out a good way to explain that, but that's what it is. So the next chunk he talks about, starting in verse 16, is he is talking about heresy. And the heresy that we're talking about, again, I have heard Sunday preachers say that what this is, is Judaism that he's talking against. That is not. What it appears to be is paganism. And one of your big clues that it's paganism and not Judaism is he speaks against asceticism, the practice of mortifying your body to improve your soul. That's not a Jewish practice. They don't have monasteries where they live out in the desert and exist on two crickets a day and see how skinny they can get without dying and all that kind of stuff. That is not Jewish. That is pagan. And when... Christianity hit the Greek world, those pagan practices did not go away. Witness the church. I mean, you have ascetics, monastic orders. Jewish practice is God told us to be fruitful and multiply. So people who are climbing, if you will, in the Jewish religion are almost always married. The idea of having whole orders of people who are celibate is not Jewish. So the list of things that's going on here in verse 16 through the end of the chapter is not talking about Judaism. It's talking about their former pagan existence. But now that they become believers in Yeshua, they are apparently getting some harassment from their former pagan friends who are talking philosophy to them and are trying to bring them into something other than the simple gospel. That's what appears to be happening there. And again, Paul does not lay out in detail what the problem is. He doesn't talk about what the actual philosophy is that's the problem, but as he talks around it, it becomes fairly obvious that it is not rabbinic Judaism. 
Now, don't get me wrong, because the book of Galatians is talking about rabbinic Judaism. So Paul has no problem whatsoever identifying the circumcision party, who are former Pharisees who are now believers in Yeshua and are of the opinion that in order for a Gentile to become saved, he must be turned into a Jew. He must be circumcised. And Paul goes off on that in the book of Galatians. So what he's going off on here in Colossians is a completely different set of circumstances. What Yeshua did was he disarmed rulers and authorities. Those are spirituals, the powers and principalities that we see all over the Bible, right? He disarmed them, put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So the question then is, are people giving them a hard time for keeping the Sabbath and keeping the dietary laws? Or are their former pagan friends giving them a hard time because they do keep the Sabbath and they do follow the dietary laws? Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or in regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths, one would be led to believe is talking about Judaism because that's in the Torah. And it can be taken two ways. Way number one is if the people who are confusing them are Jews, they're being confronted because they're not keeping the Sabbath. If the ones who are giving them a hard time are pagans, they're being confronted because they do keep the Sabbath. What he's saying is he, Messiah, has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Therefore, they have no more power and authority. Therefore, someone who cites them as an authority has no basis to criticize you. So verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him, which is to say now they have no more power and they have no more authority. Their authority is gone. It was taken away from them when Christ went down to the hell and redecorated the place and came back up. These principalities and powers and authority have no more authority anymore. In other words, if someone who is a worshiper of Apollo comes in and gives you a hard time because you used to worship Apollo with him and now you're keeping the Sabbath, now you're eating clean, now you're following the festivals, and he says, oh, Apollo's really going to be chapped with you there, fella. He's going to blight your sheep because you are not following his way. You are now following the strange new religion. And what the therefore is, is Apollo has no power. Therefore, do not let anybody give you a hard time about following Sabbath or new moons and all of the feasts of God. Those things are a shadow of what's to come. In other words, they are things that are given as rehearsals for what is going to happen when Christ returns. Moedim, the festivals, the feast, called Moedim, appointed times. Appointed times can also mean rehearsal. So trumpets, Sukkot, they're rehearsals. First off, the powers and principalities have no power. Therefore, if someone tries to judge you in their name for eating kosher or attending 
Hebrew festivals or new moons or Sabbaths understand that they have no authority because the demons that they cite as their authority have no power. And then the second thing is all of these festivals which have been set up since the creation, Sabbath was the first thing that God did. And what they are is rehearsals because what's going to happen when Christ returns, we are all going to tabernacle with him. So all of these things that you're doing are practices, rehearsals, whatever you want to call it, for the real thing that is going to happen in the new heaven and the new earth when Christ rules and reigns. God has set up his calendar, Shabbat, the festivals, the feasts, the new moons. He has set all of that up, and he has commanded us to observe those. But he also is saying in Paul and so forth, that it's like if you're a member of a uh, theater troupe, you spend months and months and months rehearsing in order to be ready for the actual production. It is not the case that you can just skip the rehearsals because the production is the thing to come. The rehearsals are just a shadow of the thing to come. But you can't skip them. Because if you do, when the thing to come comes, you will not be able to perform. He has not instituted the sukkah where he's going to dwell with his people. That is afterward. Yeah, there's going to be a wedding. There's going to be all sorts of stuff going on. And there's going to be a sukkah and and all that kind of stuff. So what's in the feasts of God, and these are not Jewish feasts. They're feasts of God. God sets them up is there rehearsals for something that is yet to come. And you can't neglect the rehearsals, otherwise, if you do, when the actual play goes on, you're going to look like a fool. Remember the parable of the king who sets up a feast, and the guests who were invited don't show up. So he sends his servants out, and he says, gather everybody to come in here because my feast is ready and my house won't be empty. So he gathers everybody in, and he's walking through all the guests, and he says, wait a minute, you don't have a wedding garment. Why don't you have a wedding garment? Bah! Out. So I will gently suggest, this is just spur-of-the-moment thought on my part, that if you don't do the rehearsals, you may be found to be one of those at the feast who do not have a wedding garment. There's all sorts of stuff in there about being prepared, And the whole point of the Moedim, the feasts of God, is to rehearse so when the real thing happens, you know what to do. The New Testament is full of references where people who think that they're in discover that they're not. The thing about Colossians is it's sort of a favorite of people who are anti-Torah. Because people can read this and they can read it as being anti-Torah. It is not. That's not what's being said. That's an incorrect interpretation. Let's pick it up at 2.20 and just swoop right on through to 3, okay? So 2.20. If with Messiah you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And this referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. Notice, according to what? Human precepts and teaching. 
Notice these are according to human precepts. These are not according to God's precepts as they are recorded in the Torah. They are specifically church or pagan additions. Could be Jewish oral law, it could be church tradition, it could be pagan traditions, but they're all human constructs. They are not the law as given by God. And one of the things that you will get is do not handle, do not taste, do not touch is very often linked back to the Jewish dietary laws and the Jewish laws about handling tahor and tamai, clean and unclean. There are all sorts of laws in the Torah about not handling and not touching stuff and about not tasting stuff and all that kind of stuff. And so someone who wants to read this as being anti-Torah will refer back to those passages in the Torah and say that's what's being talked about. But that's not what's being talked about because Paul clearly says according to human precepts and teachings, not according to Torah. 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. Notice, self-made religion, not the religion of Torah, not as given to Moses by God. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on those things above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Messiah in God. When Messiah, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So this is a completion of the thought that began with of no value stopping the indulgence of the flesh at the end of chapter 2. Now, this business of being raised in Christ. Remember I made a big point when we were back in chapter 2 talking about circumcision and baptism. So the idea that your uncircumcision counts as circumcision because of the circumcision of Messiah. That was back in chapter 2. It also says that you died with him in baptism. This is not Christianity. This is Judaism 101. What we're talking about is a mikvah. What happens in a mikvah in Jewish understanding and in the Torah is periodically everybody enters the realm of death. You could be a mortician who deals with dead bodies. You are not sinful. There's nothing wrong with what you're doing. But you have entered the realm of death when you come in contact with a dead body. You'd be a man who has a nocturnal emission. You could be a woman in her menses. There are all sorts of situations which cause people to go into the realm of death. The mechanism by which you come out of the realm of death and back into the realm of life is a mikvah. And what you do is you symbolically go down to death and you are raised from the waters into new life. And in fact, the Jewish phrase when you come up out of the mikvah is born again. So the idea is symbolically you were in the realm of death for whatever reason. Nothing to do with sin necessarily. I mean, it could be sinful, but nothing to do with sin. And so what you need to do then is you need to transition out of the realm of death and into the realm of life, and you do that by taking a mikvah. Judaism 101. Well, what is the ultimate transition from the realm of death into the realm of life? 
when you come into your knowledge of Yeshua. Before you knew Yeshua, you were living in the realm of death. You were sentenced to die. So baptism then is a symbolic, if you will, death. You go down into the water, drown, if you will, and then you come back up and you're raised from the water born again. That's what baptism is. It is a transition from the realm of death, not knowing Yeshua, not being in the kingdom of God, up into the realm of life, which is exactly analogous to what a healthy woman does once a month, what a, a man may do as many times as necessary, what a mortician has to All those transitions are all involving the same thing. And so Christian baptism is simply the ultimate transition from death into life. And so what happens is you died with Christ in baptism and you are raised with him into new life. We're talking about Nicodemus who visits Yeshua and he gets told you have to be born again and he says, do I get to take my piano? And what Yeshua then says is, hey dude, you're a teacher of the Jews and you don't know this? In other words, Yeshua slaps him around for his stupid question. It is not the case that Yeshua then stops and explains things. Yeshua just gives him a look down his nose and says, uh, come on, you know better than this. So it is in fact something he was expected to know. The question was, if you're not doing all the festivals or you're not taking regular mikvahs or something like that, should be frightened. I don't have a sense of fear. He has provided these things for us and for our benefit. Now, I suspect if you just blow them off, you might be on shaky ground. But I don't see anywhere that he demands perfection of us. That's the whole point of repentance, and that's the whole point of forgiveness. He's made provision in there for our imperfections. So you, for example, grew up as a Catholic, and you're Catholic all your life, and they told you you didn't need to do that stuff. Now you're fighting, well, maybe I do. But yeah, we do routine mikvahs. We do mikvahs at Shavuot. I've done mikvahs in the ditch in the back of my house. The idea here is not to terrorize anybody. The idea here is to get you to take it seriously and to get you to study the Torah because that's the pattern that's going to happen. And the better you know it, the more comfortable you're going to be. And I suspect that if you blow it off, then you wind up being somebody without a wedding garment. By the way, it sounds awfully like I'm bashing the Sunday church. I'm not really. I think in many things they're incorrect. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. However, most of them who have been told that what they're doing is right by people in authority that they trust. And that's been going on for 2,000 years. So you've got doctrine that has been welded in there after 2,000 years of a succession of people who trusted the one that told them. These are not people who are in rebellion. These are not people that are sticking their thumb in God's eye. These are people who care. I think they're wrong, but God, I think, can figure that out if I can. If I can figure it out, certainly he can. I don't know how he's going to do that, but I do know that it will be just and it will be gracious because that's what he is. So I wouldn't spend a whole lot of time obsessing over what you've missed, but as you become convinced of the truth of Torah, change. Move out from where you are. 
the Sunday church spends a whole lot of time dividing things into salvation issues and non-salvation issues. But one of the things that God is very clear about is he wants us to do his festivals. He wants us to keep his Sabbath. I mean, it's Ten Commandments. It's one of the big ten. I mean, it's not, not a small deal. So, for example, when I drive here on Shabbat, I am violating the Sabbath because I have a six-cylinder automobile and I'm lighting six little fires just like that. So, in a sense, I'm violating the Sabbath. And one of the things that I struggled with when we started early in this congregation was lighting the menorah because I have to kindle a fire to light the menorah on the Sabbath. And what I finally came to is two things. It says, you'll not kindle a fire in all your dwellings, and I suppose that probably means in all your countries, but I took it to mean in my house. So I I don't live in the church here, so I'm not in my dwelling. That was sort of my, my first compromise, if you will, that let me light the thing. And then the second one is, it turns out that the priests light the menorah on the Sabbath anyway. So I came to peace with that, but I'll tell you, I struggled with it for a while. So let's pick it up at three now. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Messiah is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Messiah in God. When Messiah, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's the point that I was making about baptism and all of that kind of stuff, is you have entered the realm of life, which is the kingdom of God, which is the presence of Messiah. And what it says is Messiah is holding you so that when he appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Now, whether that happens to be a resurrection event, which is to say you die a natural death, which everybody reading and writing this letter at the time have done, and then we're talking about resurrection, or as in Thessalonians, if he comes back and you're still alive, then he sort of sucks you up to him and we move along. So remember back at the end of 2, what we said is in 23, these things, which is, you know, do not handle, do not taste, do not, you know, all these regulations, which are not Torah, have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So what's happening in the first paragraph of 3 is he is saying, since you have died with Messiah, you have gone down into the waters and you've come up into the realm of life, that is the thing that is going to help you in avoiding the indulgence of the flesh. Not the artificial stuff of human religion that says don't touch, don't handle, etc. That's the point he's making, which is why I keep bouncing back and forth between 2 and 3 here. So we're in Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And I'm going to stop there because next time I'm going to talk about covetousness and idolatry. And that's more than I can do in four minutes. But to preview, what we have there is the first and the tenth commandment. So thou shalt have no other gods before me. And 
thou shalt not covet. Commandments actually two, thou shalt not make any idols. So commandment two and commandment 10 are there. And again, going back to the riff that I did on who the problem is here, the problem is clearly not Moses because he keeps referring back to Moses. The problem that the Colossians are having is not that they are brand new Christians and they're all having their Easter Sunday ham and the Jews are coming along and excoriating. That's not what's going on. Because Paul keeps dragging them back to Torah. 